This is the Australian Hunting Podcast, hunting, shooting and fishing radio on the AHP Digital Radio Network. Visit us at australianhuntingpodcast.com.au. Sit back, relax and enjoy. Here's the host of the show, Jason Selms. Welcome back to AHP. Thank you for joining me for another episode of the Australian Hunting Podcast, hunting, shooting and fishing radio. Can you believe this is episode 200? And uh, what an awesome way to crack off episode 200. I'm talking today with Steve Robinson from Bold Action Productions. Now, if you haven't heard from Steve or about Steve, you can actually log into YouTube and just type in Bold Action Productions. Now, Steve has been making uh, YouTube videos probably now for around that five or six year mark. I think he does have some older videos as well, uh, but he's pretty much dedicated a lot of his spare time to making YouTube videos and showing people what it's like to be out in the field hunting and shooting. He gives you tips and tricks on ways to hunt, and he also talks about general shooting-related content such as reloading, such as a rifle load testing, and also down to basic videos like how to clean your rifle, uh, which is really important to making sure your rifle's in tip-top condition before you put it back into the safe. But majority of what he concentrated on is taking you out on the adventure in the field, taking you out and being part of it, taking you out and showing you exactly what hunting and shooting is all about. And uh, it's absolutely awesome. So if you want to check him out, Bold Action Productions on YouTube. Give him a like on Instagram and throw your support that way. That'd be absolutely fantastic. Before I get on to the interview with Steve, I just want to say this is episode 200 and I just really can't believe it, guys. And I really don't know what to say because this podcast has been going pretty much since about early March of 2011. And uh, that's pretty much nine years in this space. And it's definitely the longest uh, shooting and hunting and fishing podcast uh, in Australia. And uh, I don't even know why, to be honest. I br- started it back in 2011. I thought it was a good idea at the time. I thought maybe we'll see how it goes, see how it plays out, see if the people actually like the show. And nine years later, here we are. And I guess if I could give one piece of advice over this you know, nine years would be, guys, you know, get out there and have fun. Pretty much, you know, we're not going to live forever. We're on borrowed time. So get out there and have a good time. Get out there, hunt, shoot, enjoy yourselves with your friends and your family and uh, have those fun, great experiences out in the field because there's nothing like when I get to go out, when I do get to go hunting. Uh, I love spending time around the fire talking to friends. That's one of the really biggest things I love the most is hanging out with friends. And I know there's a lot of people out there that love to go solo hunting and that's fantastic too and that's something I wouldn't mind trying one day but it's coming back from the hunt having that solitude when you're actually out hunting but then also coming back to your campgrounds after you've finished hunting and uh, having a good chat having something to eat sitting around the fire uh, and enjoying stories and having a chat about what happened during that day when you're out on the hunt so episode 200 I'm just really really blown away and uh, a lot of people asked me there was a bit of a gap between podcasts just after the New South Wales election and uh, I'll be honest guys you know I had a I guess a blip on the radar so to speak I was pretty much adamant at that time I was going to cease doing the show after all the events uh, of what happened during the New South Wales election, the things that were being said, uh, you know, from from our pro-gun parties, from our organisations, and it really just shocked me, the things that were being said, and I thought, really, what's the point of continuing the show if this is the sort of thing that's going to come out? And, you know, I guess I had to think over that six weeks, and, you know, I sort of did a bit of soul-searching, and uh, I finally decided that I was going to continue with the show and and, and bring you more content, but uh, I came really close, guys, to, to, you know, basically shutting up shop and quitting the show, but I guess I'm glad I had a chance to think about it 
it and didn't make any rash decisions, and uh, I'm glad I didn't make any rash decisions throughout that period. I know there's a lot of people that love the show. I want to thank all the people that support me on Patreon and all the people that write to me, all the people that write to me on Facebook. You know, we've got over 33,000 now on Facebook, and you know, it really is starting to build. So how dare I try and quit now? I mean, it would just be ridiculous. So I'm glad I decided to continue, and I want to thank everyone for all the support uh, for episode 200. So what we're going to do, uh, Steve Robinson is from Bold Action Productions, so we're going to bring him on the show. Steve Robinson, welcome to AHP. Thank you for joining me and uh, accepting my invitation to come onto the show to have a chat about hunting and shooting and making videos for YouTube. Thank you very much. Thanks, mate. It's great to be here. Looking forward to this. Excellent. Mate, first off, I want to find out, I guess, about yourself first. Uh, you know, how did you get into hunting? How did you get into shooting? Just give us a bit of background of yourself growing up as well. Yeah, well, myself, I'm a young bloke, only 55, young and, <laughs> young and, mind, young and mind at least. The body's slowing down a little bit. But, um, yeah, hunting and shooting, how did I get into it? Well, that's a good question. But, um, basically, it was part of what we did from the time we were little kids. Um, you know, look, my, my dad, his, well, my pop, his dad, uh, was a returned serviceman from the First World War, fourth light horseman, and uh, he was a blacksmith. And they travelled the country, basically working the farms, um, and the kids, but there was a few boys and girls, um, they all had to play a part. Now, part of that was vermin control. So if they weren't trapping, they were running dogs, they were shooting rabbits off the back of... Uh, you know, hay carts. So it was pretty much what they did. They knew no different. They had to be part of the whole family situation. They had to provide. So when we were growing up, uh, we were always up in the bush. We we lived on the outer fringe of Melbourne sort of thing, but it was sort of semi-rural, semi-bush. So we were out all the time. If we weren't there, we were sort of camping, hunting, trapping, and from the time, oh, I couldn't even put an age on it, but from the time I was a little kid, I remember always going and checking the traps under torchlight with Dad at night before we went to bed. Then in the, then in the morning, we'd do it again. And then as we got older, there was myself, my brother, uh, and my three three boys were cousins. So there was five boys, and my dad and his brother were all, they were all really close. So we were always doing something and i remember we used to dad had a little morris minor 1000 ute and three of the five or five five of the five boys would get in the back of that ute put a blanket over the back of us and just go down the road checking our traps in the morning or taking a 22 if we thought there's going to be a few rabbits around so it was purely rabbit hunting uh pest control when we were little there was no deer shooting or anything like that but uh yeah it's like anything when you're younger you're a little bit hesitant but after a while, you realise how much you missed it when you weren't doing it. So it was always something that we did as a family and more so as I grew into teenage years, I just wanted to experiment more with, you know, sort of trapping, slingshots, bows, whatever, whatever we could make to hunt with. That's that's what we did. So. Awesome. So a lot of rabbits, uh, did you eat them as well? Uh, not so much myself. I was never a massive fan of rabbit, but uh, as family in general, yes. Um, but yeah, I think it's like anything. Not probably the uh, cooking techniques of sort of in the sixties and seventies are a little bit different 
um, to what you know people would do today. So yeah, I think yeah you can sort of polish it up a lot better. But it's yeah look, don't get me wrong, it, it can be a nice meat, but yeah, it wouldn't be my preferred game meat. That's for sure. What about your family members? Are they still into it now? Your brothers, or I'm not sure if you've got a sisters brother, or anything. My, or? Uh, my cousin's not so much, but my brother's my brother is big time. He's he's got a fair old rig. He's got a you know, one of those Pioneer 1000 side by side things, a beast of machine. That he leaves up on one of the properties, and he's up there all the time. Um, and that's he's on one of the properties just north of where we. Hunt. So we often we often amalgamate and do some fox drives and that together or whatever. And um, yeah, so no, he's very much in it. Always been into his firearms. Or the same as myself. So, and he was the youngest of the five boys. So it's interesting, isn't it? How back in you know that long time ago, where you know money was hard to come by, people needed to do trapping. They needed to do that sort of stuff to sort of survive in those you know some of those harder days. It's funny how it's transitioned away from that I guess in you know the 21st century about not having to do those types of things I guess both good and bad in some respects well it was definitely more of a necessity then and um, a lot of the kids you know would be basically getting rabbits with which with whatever methods so I said shooting trapping ferreting ferreting was a big thing for us as well and they, they had the local rabbit over then who would come along and buy their rabbits and, he, and even as as a kid for myself in my teenage years our next door neighbour was a butcher supplier, and he used to oh, don't quote me on price, but I think he used to give us a dollar a pair of rabbits, and all we had to do was basically make sure we headshot them, and gutted them, left them in the skin, and kept them cool. And he would he would give us cash money for those. Um, I think those days are well, definitely here are probably long gone. But um, yeah, it was it wasn't a necessity. Different times, and uh, I won't say it was well. Probably was a little bit better time. But definitely a more relaxed period, and hunting and shooting was just something that was classed as a norm. It wasn't something that was places. Well, oh, this is this is weird. This is unusual. Which is sort of the way it is seen by many people nowadays. Which is wrong, in my opinion. Would you like to advertise on one of the most tech-savvy mediums on the internet? Then why don't you advertise with us on the Australian Hunting Podcast? If you have a product or business that you would like to promote, then we would love to hear from you. Become one of our partner advertisers by calling Jason on 0425 881 967 or email australianhuntingpodcast at gmail.com. What do you think about the humble twenty-two of you? Do you still own a twenty-two today? And uh, what do you think about them? Yeah, I own a few twenty-twos. Probably handed in one of my favourites. I had a little Anschutz semi-auto twenty-two. Um, yeah, I miss that because uh, look, if you sort of knew you had a bad shot in your first one, you'd almost have another one on its way before the rabbit had moved. So yeah, now I love the twenty-twos. Probably. Oh, look, I used to go through two bricks of 22 ammo, you know, say 1,000 rounds of 22 ammo every year without even trying. But to be honest with you, <laughs> the rabbits have really died off now and probably things have changed for us over the last few years and more so the last 10 years. So I used to be able to go into any of these properties and sort of fill my fridge with rabbits within the first half an hour of hunting. It's a little bit harder now. So, but it, it it could change back too. Like rabbits are a pretty resilient sort of animal. It's interesting because some of the properties, even I go to, I'm going to one in November, sort of down 
just near Swan Hill, just over the other side of the border in God's country, New South Wales. But um, I'm, I'm uh, interesting to find there's not many rabbits going around. And I made a couple of videos or many videos about probably, I don't know, a year or so ago, year and a half ago. And I had my absolute pick of rabbit warrens. You know, if I look to my left, there was rabbit warrens. Look to my, you know, nine, 10 o'clock position, rabbit warrens. 12 o'clock position, rabbit warrens. They were everywhere. And it was just a, a long range shooting uh, person's dream, basically. But then I went back the next year, and I'm like, "Oh, there's not really much to shoot this year, is there?" You know what I mean? So, no, we've had the same thing. And, and don't get me wrong, we can still find rabbits if we want. But uh, look, one of the videos we did a, a few years back, and yeah, it was probably about three or four years, just before they re-released this last strain, I believe, of Khaleesi virus. We over that week, uh, and our job on these properties is obviously to eliminate the rabbits. We take what we need, but basically elimination um, is the key. No different to why they're bringing in poison. But we could have shot between us, if I said best part of a thousand rabbits over that week, and we're not talking that long ago. I'd say four to five years at the most. But now we'd be lucky to shoot sort of fifty to hundred over the same period of time. So it's, but it, like I said, it can change. Yeah, that was a good video you made. Actually, that's how I, that's how I, one of the ones I think, and I didn't realise it was you when someone put me onto you and said you got to, you got to interview Steve, and I said Steve, who's this Steve fella? And then I once I recognised your sort of videos, I went, oh, I'm sure I've seen this guy. I think I watched a couple of his videos, and uh, yeah, great content. I really enjoyed that one. I think you guys were sort of down the bottom of a hill, so to speak, and you had your little. I don't know, little beach gazebos out, and you were shooting from your little beach gazebos and or whatever they were, the little cover things. So, and uh, it was great, man, fantastic shooting up on the hill, long range. I'm not sure how far exactly you guys were shooting, but it looked, you know, three to four hundred meters, uh, and looked fantastic. Yeah, well, sort of, we hunt the conditions, and and obviously the long range side of it, especially on rabbits, it can be the most effective way. Like you walk over that hill, and you might get a couple of dozen. Uh, you sit back and wait. Um, you can sort of eliminate a few hundred over a, 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 an afternoon session. So, yeah, and on that location, that's a bit of a bowl there. And there is still rabbits there and quite a few foxes every now and then. But that sort of range, distance range from probably 200 out to about six or 700 yards. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's one part of what we do, and it's definitely a very effective part. So, I'm sure the barrels would have been running hot that day, that's for sure. Uh, uh, yeah, there's a few of the boys get uh, pretty excited. Sometimes um, you'll just see someone put the binoculars down. They won't tell you what they're looking at. <laughs> and then they'll <laughs> basically uh, just go down the rifle and the question will be asked, what do you see? Nothing, nothing. But, uh, yeah, look, no, most time it's we sort of enjoy everyone's company when we're up there. And, like, a lot of those areas, if you were just to sit out and, uh, in an afternoon, like most of those times it's done over spring or summer, so you can be pushing temperatures well in excess of 30, 35 degrees. So, yeah, uh, sitting back in a bit of shade, um, yeah, getting the long-range stuff out can definitely be very effective on vermin control. So where do you do majority of your, your hunting? Are you sort of in that in that Victorian region? I think we said you were from uh, uh, the outskirts of Melbourne. So do you do most of your hunting in Victoria? Majority of it. Um, like for me, like my kids have grown up now. They're young adults now. But when they were younger, look, it's always hard to find that balance of working and then getting time to go away. And if I, if I had to drive sort of five, six hours to every hunting location, you're just not going to do it as often. So I sort of set myself a goal 
of basically working properties that we, you know, we knew we could do well on sort of within an hour and a half, two hours of home. So we're sort of, a lot of it in that rabbit situation was the main areas sort of around the Strathbogies, sort of central Victoria, um, which was always, you know, it's, it's just the old scenario. You find rocky, hilly country, dry country, that was rabbit haven, you know, and the Strathbogies is no exception for that. The new Zeiss Conquest V4 line of high-performance rifle scopes combines tried-and-true Zeiss optics with a rugged and functional design, providing high-definition glass. Enhanced with T-Star and low-to-tech protective lens coatings produces 90% to the eye-light transmission. This means excellent low-light performance and resolution across the entire magnification range. Zeiss Conquest V4 rifle scopes were designed as a lightweight, high-performance scope for demanding hunting and shooting applications. Visit o- usaaustralia.com.au to find your local dealer. Zeiss, we make it visible. It's interesting because I never thought I'd be interested in this long-range shooting type stuff, long-range varminting, and yeah, I really enjoy it now, especially rabbits. I used to talk to a lot of my friends, and even them now, we'd go deer hunting, and they'd be like, "Where's the? is there any rabbits around? I'm like, don't worry yeah, about the yeah. rabbits. Let's shoot some deer. What are you talking about? But they just love uh, the rabbits, but I love it too now. I really do. Yeah, look, it's it's a good way to spend an afternoon, a very productive way. Um, it tests your skill. Um, look, shooting long range, as far as vermin are concerned, you only have to basically hit them with the, the projectiles we're using and it's instant death. And that's what we're about. You know, we don't want to see any animal suffer or whatever. Um, but in reality, yeah, they get hit hard. But, yeah, it's... Like you would know, it's not so much getting your elevations and that right, it's judging that wind. And this is where your higher BC produce start to come into it. But, yeah, it's a challenge, but it also makes you really want to perfect your rifle, your your hand loads, the whole thing, your scopes. The weakest link will usually be the bloke behind the butt. Absolutely. And uh, I want to talk about that too. And that's a good one to get into very early on is, you know, the ethics, you probably had no doubt people on, you know, YouTube, I've had it, a lot of people of different people have had it where, oh, well, that's long range shooting, that's unethical, you know, you shouldn't be shooting that far. And how do you define the, the ethics of, of shooting long range? And um, how do you perceive it? Well, ethics is a word that can often create a bit of controversy between all hunters, shooters, and for me, um, the hunters tend to not like that. But I consider myself both a hunter and a shooter. They both go together as far as I'm concerned. Otherwise, why would we have an Australian shooting magazine or sporting shooter, but then Australian hunting magazine? You know, it's, to me, they go hand in hand. You know, so, uh, look, I think you've got to sit well with it yourself. I, I'm not... I've basically got to do it to do a job. If I go to onto a, a, a property, um, I've got to assess the situation. Now, my ethics are very simple. All I want to do is basically aim to shoot that animal and kill it as quickly and humanely as possible. Now, whether that's at 50 yards or 500 yards, I've just got to know my skill level. And you know, there's plenty of guys that have gone out there, bought a brand new 3006, never been the range, roughly side of the gun in and legally go out deer hunting. So you can look at it all different perspectives. But for me, if you are confident in your gear, confident in your ability and confident that you can put that animal down quickly, humanely as possible, 
I have no issue with it. The hunting side of it, I definitely prefer to get in close where I can. And as many would say, you know, to get in the animal's face, basically. And it's, I totally agree with that. But there is a place for everything. And that's what I think we all need to remember is that in our situation, we might go into a property that's got a, the farmer said to us, listen, we've got a problem with deer coming in and eating our olives or our grapes or, you know, just basically starting to, the numbers are starting to go up. If we go up there and they've got, you know, 500 kangaroos in there, if we were to hunt that traditionally, as soon as the kangaroos move, the deer are going to move. So for us, we have to look at it and say, well, we've got to do this job for the hunt, for the farmer. How are we going to do this effectively? And this is where the long range stuff comes in. Um, and whether you like it or not, it is just one tool in the arsenal. Uh, and for me, I have to be practical about what I do. Yeah, and I guess it's about the I guess the shooters you said being comfortable in you know making those shots. And if they're comfortable in their gear, well then you know the ethics should be fine if they're comfortable in making those shots and they have the experience in doing that. Well, look, as soon as you squeeze off that shot, you've taken responsibility for it. Now, if you've known before you've squeezed off that shot that you didn't feel right about it or so, well, that was a bad decision. Now, whether that's at twenty yards with a bow or whether that's at 500 yards with a long-range rifle. You make a decision every time you squeeze off that shot. And if you don't feel right about it, well, as you get older and as you get a little bit more experienced, you don't tend to do those shots. You tend to hold off. You tend to wait a little bit more. Um, but when you're younger and it's the first thing you see and whatever, I think we've all been through that scenario where you, you've probably taken shots that you, you possibly thought, after, well, maybe I shouldn't have done that. Um, so when none of us are perfect, but I think – the main aim that we should all have is to try and perfect our gear and try and perfect our skills. Absolutely. You talked about having kids. Uh, did your kids uh, take up the, the hunting and shooting or not so much? Uh, my kids, both my boy and my, uh, my daughter, have both been um, hunting with me, camping with my wife since they've been in nappies. Um, like they're in their mid te- mid 20s now sort of thing they're starting their own careers so not at the moment they don't do anything but they may come back to it but uh, they're right into it they're all they're both competent um, archers they're both competent with rifles and I think it's been a very good upbringing for them um, and I still hear like, especially with my daughter every now and then she misses sort of being up in the bush every now and then. She lives in the city now. But, um, yeah, so, uh, look, I think it's, as I say, swings and roundabouts. I know I went away from it when I was in my mid-20s trying to build my house and establish a career and that. But once I got set, the first thing I wanted to get back into was my hunting. So, And that was back sort of late 20s. Yeah. That's how I see it anyway. Excellent. What about hunting? Obviously, you do hunting. You do any other types of shooting, like yeah, pistols, shotguns, any just general uh, rifle work at the range, or what do you like to do? Uh, I'm primarily a hunter, but um, recently I probably sort of started to have more to do with the local clubs, but I, I don't shoot there. I have gone down a little river a couple of times, but you know, it's – I don't really have any need to. Sort of most of the properties we can go, we do our siding and testing and that on these sort of locations. So uh, as far as the shooting side of it, no, um, I don't get involved with those. But um, as far as the social side of it and uh, being in the ADA and whatever, uh, yeah, we've got a great 
a couple of local clubs down here and it's always good to catch up with the boys. And I'm doing that more and more now. And, um, yeah, I, I possibly should have done it earlier in my life, but we have sort of pretty busy with just full on um, basically being away. Any spare time we have, we're away. Looking for outdoor equipment for your next adventure? At Aussie Outdoor Gear, you can find cooking equipment, camo clothing for kids, backpacks, camo accessories and much more. We cater for your hunting, fishing, camping, hiking and other outdoor pursuits with our unique product range. AussieOutdoorGear.com.au Quality gear at affordable prices. It's always good, isn't it, when you're working during the week? That's one of the things I really look forward to is getting away and, you know, having that next goal of getting away, you know, because sometimes when you know you don't have the the next hunting trip up, you can, you know, get a bit weighed down by work. And, you know, when you know you've got that trip coming up, it really gives you something to look forward to. Well, I think like most serious sort of hunters, if you're not doing it, you're thinking about it. Um, <laughs> you know, and um, <laughs> and I've always got something on the go. And if I'm not building a rifle, I'm uh, tuning one up. I'm load developing. I'm, or now I'm sort of planning what trips we got and what videos we're going to do and whatever. So there's plenty of aspects to hunting and shooting, and that's what many people miss out on. You know, like I, I don't think I would ever know someone that couldn't find some part of hunting, shooting that they didn't like, whether that's shotguns, whether it's pistols, whether it's competition, whether it's air rifles, whether it's hunting, whatever. There's usually someone, if you let any individual experience every one of those, I'd be very surprised if majority wouldn't come away with at least one aspect of it that they would like to do, you know, or follow up on. I, it's interesting. Actually, I want to talk about something you made. You started a bit of a series the other day. I guess it was a bit of a live feed, and I was watching your one talking about uh, uh, reloading. You were talking about load development. I want to talk about this one because I found it very interesting. Mm-hmm. Now, I've got, a, I've got a Lyman Gen 6 exactly like you do. Now, I found yeah. it to be okay, but I've also got an RCBS. I think it's one of the new ones. Is it the M500 or the M505? I think it's the M500, and I want you to talk and tell people about you know, electronic scales versus balance beam scales, because I found that very interesting as well. And I've got both. I do like to use both for, for different reasons. Um, tell us about that. Um, yeah, like you said, the linemen, they've got their place. But if I was to set up from scratch now, I don't think it would be in my agenda to go the um, the digital side, side of it. Um the balance beam, and it probably comes down to reloading, you want to keep it simple, you want to keep it reliable, you want to keep it affected, uh, least affected by the environment. Um, obviously, the digital scales have improved, but for me, I still always go back to my balance beam for final confirmation, especially especially on stuff I need, high accuracy. And not only do you want you you have the balance beam, I also have them at eye level. So I'm looking right at eye level, straight at them, and have them on a good, solid bench. The Gen 6, um, well, to be honest with you, my first one went back. Um, the boys actually bought it for my 50th birthday, and it went back. My hour were fantastic. Um, I didn't have any receipts or anything because the boys had bought it for me as a gift. But I contacted them, told them what was happening. It was basically the on-off button. It wasn't going on or off. Like the touchpad was a bit dodgy. But anyway, long story short, they sent me down a replacement. Couldn't have been happier. 
and this one I've got now does work well. I think for a normal hunting load, uh, something that uh, you're not after absolute supreme accuracy, they're going to be spot on. They're going to do the job. They're going to be close enough. They're going to be within you know 0.1 of a grain, no problem at all. But if I had my choice now, I would probably, if I was starting fresh, I would still stick with a good balanced beam scale and I would probably just go for a really good powder thrower. And my recommendation for, uh, would be probably the Harrell followed by the sort of the Redding. And I think you can throw charges just as well with those and probably, if not quicker, um, when you get into a right method. So, yeah, that would be my recommendation. Like I said, nothing wrong with the electronics, but I just think the other option offers a little bit more accuracy. I love my balance beam scales. The only issue I found, and it's not an issue with the product at all by any stretch, was when I was loading, I had the Lee cups, and you know it gives you the the, the chart, so I knew exactly what to put in there, a couple of grains below. Then I started yeah. trickling up, and it would get to a point, or it just wouldn't move, and I'm like, like trickling, trickling, nothing, trickling. Why is this thing not moving? What's happening? But what I figured it out was, and it took me ages to find out what it was, is that there's two uh, magnetic dampeners in the balance beam scale. So it's basically a hold. From what I understand is, it's ba- the uh, or the the arm is basically held held in there by the magnetic dampeners. And because when when I'd actually give the pendulum a bit of a flick with my finger, all of a sudden it would just read high. I'm going, well, what the hell happened? Like, what's happening with this? And it took me like about six months to, to figure out actually what it was. So I'm surprised when I'm actually trickling up, if it doesn't move, actually it's the magnetic dampeners that are actually holding it basically in place. And so you've got to give it the pendulum just a little bit of a touch just to get it moving. And once it's moving, th- then it's totally 100% fine. But it took me ages. I thought, is there something wrong with these things? What's happening? But no, it just turns out you've got to give it just a little bit of a flick to get it to work properly. That's all. And what's this scale? This what was the one this you mentioned? One, that's the RCBS M five hundred. Because as the you know, as you read it, you got the the three lines there where you're actually trying to you know meet up with the yeah, middle yeah. one. In, yeah. Inside the actual where it, it, it you know goes up and down, there's two little magnetic dampeners. All oh, right, yeah, yeah, I have heard of it. Yeah, yeah but I'm not I'm not familiar with it. And to be honest with you, that would drive me mad. <laughs> oh, I, I prefer the my my, my old five oh five. I've had probably since about 18 years old. So, yeah, you know, sort of pushing 40 years old. Keep it covered. Keep it in a good spot and it'll last you for a long time. And that, and they are still one of the most reliable scales, I think. I, I thought it was – I think the only reason they put the dampeners in there was to, like, basically make it a little bit quicker to stop, you know, as the, as the pendulum's moving, to, to bring it to a stop fair, not fairly quickly, but within a reasonable time frame. Because I, I think if you don't have it, it just up and down, up. And down, you know, yeah, yeah, well, yeah. Well, I don't know. I'm sort of I, I throw usually with the powder thrower, uh, sort of just a. I usually set them to go a fraction under. Yeah. Um, and again, it comes down to whether I'm setting up for a hunting round that is a forgiving round, something like the triple two. You could be out a little bit, and it wouldn't make much difference. But if I'm trying to go for ultra precision, well, obviously I want to double check every every round. Tell us about your favourite rifles, mate. What have you got, uh, if you don't mind sharing sort of thing? Or I know you just got a bit of a combo gun not too long ago. And you, yeah, yeah. That, um, well, I won't say that's my favourite yet because I haven't had it long enough, but I will talk about that in a second. But, yeah, probably 
Look, I used to call my go-to rifle um, my Seiko 75 Finlight and the 308. Um, I did a lot of work on that um, just to perfect it, the fit for me. Um, I got a Carl's, uh, it's called an MZ, 3 to 9 by 42 MZ scope, which was multi-zero. It's sort of like an, uh, like an early version of the Swarovski BT. And then I machined up a turret and made up my own, well, made up some labels for distance and whatever. And that is a very, very flexible rifle. But probably of late, for my deer shooting, the, the Tika, the, the 7mm red mag, has probably been my, my go-to. A little bit more punch, a little bit more range, and it's lighter. Um, yeah, but besides that, previously, probably my favourite rifle would have been my older Seiko Triple Twos with the Carl's Ape 56 on it, because I, I just used it all the time. That was my workhorse for whistling foxes, spotlight. We do used to do heaps of spotlighting, you know, almost sort of dusk till dawn. Um, but that combination, yeah, that could be interesting, and it will be my pick for uh, whistling foxes, I think. What's some of your older rifles you've got, you've still got from that you've owned for, for many years? I think I saw one, I was when you were doing the rabbit shooting, you had your... You, you might have been your custom made two four three because I've got a two four three as well, and I noticed when I was shooting the, I think it was the Sierra eighty five grain hollow point boat tails, just wasn't seeing the expansion that that I sort of desired. I know you, I think you were using the eighty seven grain Vmax, and um, you were getting pretty good frangible results on rabbits with that. So tell us about that rig. Um, well, that rig's a, a little bit different. Obviously, it's it started its life actually as a full wood. Uh, L579 Seiko. It was in a 243. And then I just had an inkling to make my own varmint rifle, which was a key word. This was probably uh, around the early 2000, probably about 2000, 2001. And I thought, I'm going to find out, I'm, I'm going to build this rifle up. So I did a bit of research. I thought, what do I want? I'm happy with the 243. I want to stick to stuff, stick to a caliber that I can get components readily and that's a key for me i need to to basically know i can walk into a shop and get what i need so the 243 was a given uh barrel i end up going as heavy and as long as i could fit on that action so it's ended up it's a madco one in 12 twist which is a little bit different for normal 243 normal 243 is one in 10 uh the barrel length is around 30 inches so it's obviously a lot longer oh, wow, and yeah. it's ba- and it's basically like a uh axle off a ve- off a vehicle it's pretty it's pretty big it's pretty heavy i think the end of the barrel is still about an inch in diameter so my theory was to basically keep the weight forward and that would help me with recoil uh, muzzle brakes weren't even spoken of then um it would help me with recoil and basically being able to spot my own shots. The scope on that is a early night forced one of their bench rest series, which wasn't even available in the country in that configuration. It was a three three and a half to fifteen by fifty six. Uh, Peter Van Muir's from Procal was the agent early on, and he organised it for me to get the target turret set up on it, and they actually have one eight. MOA turrets on them. So that was the initial setup. And then basically I had to build a stock and I hand carved that stock myself out a bit of uh, African walnut and nice. then basically pillar bedded it, 
embedded it in Brownell's steel bed, which is like a stainless steel filing in an epoxy. Uh, it's got a Madco trigger on it, which most people don't realise were ever made. Um, and that can go down to three ounces. I think I've got it set at about six. And basically then it was just a matter of hand loading from there. It's pretty forgiving as far as if I haven't done my part of it, it will easily shoot quarter minute of angle now with those 87 grain VMAX. Have you been I happy with ri- the 87s? you pretty happy with them? Well, I did originally start off with the 75s, and then I found at the longer shots, once I was starting to push sort of beyond 500 yards on rabbit-sized targets, the wind was really starting to make the hit-and-miss ratio yeah. a lot higher. So that's when I thought, I can still run these 87s, and I'm going to give them a go. The higher BC, uh, even though they started off a bit slower, downrange, they soon um, sort of caught up and basically had a lot more hitting power. So my hits started to – my percentage of hits started to increase massively with this, purely, especially on the windy days. And, yeah, definitely probably my all-round favourite projectile for speed and um, hitting power. Renowned for their strength, reliability and attention to detail, Moroku shotguns are the perfect example of what a sporting shotgun should be. Moroku have been producing quality products for over a century and sold in Australia since 1963. Each Moroku shotgun is crafted with precision, from the MK Trap and sporting models to the all-round best-selling field shotgun, the MK70. Visit morokushotguns.com.au for more details and stockists. Excellent, mate. What about, so you were talking about the 7 mils, so what, when were you thinking, mate, I've, I love these cartridges, I want to buy one, what sort of, what was the catalyst that sort of got you into wanting to buy those? Uh, well, I did a lot of research. Obviously, I'd had a fair bit of experience with the 6 mil, the 243, and I thought, well, any time you're going to build up a rifle, you've got to, it's, it's no good having a three throughout Lapua if you can't, if you don't feel comfortable behind it, if you, if you end up developing a flinch. So you've got to develop a rifle that is going to be, going to, going to get the best out of you. So in other words, you've got to be comfortable behind it. And in this case, the 7 mil sort of just, it's the best bang for your buck, as in it, it's fast, it's got the highest, the 7 mil rem mag I'm talking here, fast, you know, it's highest BC for its weight, it's mild to shoot, and it just shoots well with great hitting power, you know, especially downrange. So yeah, that was a no-brainer for me. Was that or the 300 wind mag? Um, the 300 wind mag is definitely a harder, more savage recoil, but most, a lot of people love them, you know, and, and they, they hit well, don't get me wrong. But for me, the 7 mil ticked all the boxes. Yeah, I used to have a 7 mil 08 years ago, and I'm probably disappointed I sold it now, but it was only because, again, components at the time were just way too hard to come by. And, you know, I just was, yeah. that's the only thing I was disappointed in. Other than that, the, the round was absolutely fantastic. Flat shooter. Mate, I was shooting 120s, I think, at the time, 130s. I think it was the Hornadies. And, mate, even through goats at, you know, 150, 200 metres, just straight through, like a fantastic calibre. So I really do like the 7 mils myself, actually. Yeah, well, it's funny you speak of that. It's just come up on a couple of YouTube channels lately. A couple of the boys have brought it up. I know Profty, uh, he he loves his 708. And Hill Dog, I think that's his favourite calibre. So he always talks about it for his deer. 
So it's surprising, you know, you don't always have to go, you know, to the biggest calibre to get the most effective. And the seven just the seven just hits it for me, you know. True. I was looking at the, I think one of your videos too, and this is interesting because I've just started, I bought a 260 Remington just probably two, three months ago, and we'll talk about the Hornadies. And you, I think you were running the, if I remember from your videos, the, you were running the SST and you weren't, if I'm correct, entirely happy with some of the results from that, but you went over to the ELDX because I'm shooting the 143s for the 6.5 as well. So what do you think about the difference in the SSTs versus the ELDXs? Um, well, I, I don't know if I would probably say I'm not happy with the SS2. It was more of a sort of, oh, I wonder, I wonder if these are better. You know, there's something new, and because they ramp it up and they say, oh, i got this new heat-proof <laughs> tip and whatever, I'm thinking. But, look, in all, in all honesty, um, uh, yeah, look, the, the SS2s are great, especially for, look, to be honest with you, I think with the SS2s, they do get a bit of bad press, but I think you just got to know how to use them right. Um, when they're running hard, they will tend to fragment and expand very rapidly. But for argument's sake, on deer or larger tar- targets, well, I change my shot place- placement. I mean, the, the closer shots, I'll sort of go through the neck or forward of the shoulder, and uh, they, tend, they tend to be devastating there. When, I'm, when I go out further with the SST, um, this is where they shine because when they get at lower velocities where some of the harder pills will just go through like a full metal jacket, they will actually still expand quite well and they're actually good sort of 300 yards and beyond. The ELDX, I haven't done enough real testing to say that they are that much better, but um, the deer that I've shot, uh, most of them haven't moved off, off the spot. But again, it's been good shot placement on the few times that I've done it. Is that uh, the is that the one sixty twos out of the seven mil? Y- yes, mate. Yes, exactly. So I tried the one seventy fives. Um, now I've got two seven mil rifles. I've got a rough tech range, um, which is my long range heavy hitter. And in the end, I end up shooting the same loads, the same ELDX. Now I did start off with the Burgers, the one sixty eights. But I had a lot of pass-throughs for those. Uh, very extremely accurate and probably a little bit more accurate than the ELDX. But I tried the 175s, and I think, if I remember correctly on the box, it actually says it needs a, either a 1 in 9.5 or 1 in 9 twist barrel or faster. And most times I like to push my rounds to get the most out of them as far as velocity. And I found they would work all right at lower speeds, but when I started to push them up, it just opened up to sort of inch, two-inch groups. So they obviously weren't stabilising correctly with that higher speed. But the 162s definitely have shot the best out of both my 7mm's. I'm actually considering, and a lot of guys ask me about this, and I'm not even remotely experienced in 204s. Do you have a 204? And if so, do you like it? Um, I have a 204, and... For probably near on 30, 30 years, I shot the triple two primarily as my Fox Varmint sporting rifle. And I've had a couple of them. Um, and it got to the stage for my last one, my uh, Seiko A1 um, was basically burnt out barrel-wise. And I thought, well, what do I do? do I? And everyone said, I oh, just re-barrel it, just re-barrel it. Well, I had this inkling of, I've done this for 30 years. Let's try something different. 
So hence this is where the 223 come into mind and the 204 come into mind. So because I had bigger calibers, the 243s or whatever, I thought 204 sounds great. It virtually is like a lighter weight 22250. 22 so yeah, to, to answer your question, my Seiko 85 Sporter, which I bought, didn't shoot as well out of the box with factory ammo, factory 32 and factory 40 grain Hornady projectiles as my brother, my brother's T3 uh, in the same calibre. So I had to do a fair bit of work with hand loading to get that Seiko to shoot well. It does shoot well now. It shoots well under half. And probably my preferred projectile is the 39 grain Sierra Blitzkings. Um, they've been the best balance. Again, the Burger, I think it's a little 32 grain. We're actually more accurate again. They almost hit a one hole group. But my brother's one with factory ammo was almost a one hole um, thing with those Hornadies. So I love the caliber. It's very quick. Um, it's mild to shoot. I wouldn't say in a sporting rifle that it's you've got no recoil. You still get recoil. Um, but we often compare. We'll have I have young Jake with me. He's got his T3 Timber Blue fluted in a two two three, shooting fifty five grain nozzle ballistic tips. And we're like we're, we're head to head a lot of times. And we've so I've seen him shoot rabbits sort of. 500, 560 yards, and we've been pushing each other side by side. And the only thing you really notice is the downrange power, his hits a fraction harder, and I say a fraction, but definitely mine is a fraction quicker to the target. Not that it really comes into it, but either way, um, if you've got bigger calibers like yourself, what you're talking, the 260s and that, I'd probably definitely consider the 204, but if you didn't, and you just had a 22, I'd probably go a 223, a bit more versatile, you know, if you want to shoot pigs and that as well, you know. Yeah. I've had a few. I've had a 223. I've had a couple of 243s, and I never thought, Steve, I'd actually, you know, actually buy a 243. I used to sort of make fun of them, and <laughs> I was one of those guys. But, you know, once I saw them in action, I thought, what will be a great varmint caliber for sort of long range? But getting back to your 204, is that in the – is that in the uh, is it a heavy barrel configuration or is it a sporter configuration? No, it's just a timber blue um, sporter, Seiko 85. Okay, yeah. Uh, and I've, yep. I've got a, what have I got on that, the uh, 4 to 12 or 3 to 12, whatever, the Z3 on that with the ballistic turret. Uh, I might actually be changing that soon because I've got a spare scope that I might swap over. But, oh, uh, first world problems, yeah. mate. Scopes everywhere, oh, hey? Well, <laughs> well when, I, when, I, yeah, when I set up, when I set up the uh, 7 mil, uh, the 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 Tika that I use now, um, the scope that Swarovski has just released wasn't available then, and it would have been my first choice. So I had a three and a half to eighteen for forty four, uh, the Z five on it, and I'm not much into big magnification scopes. I just don't see the need. Uh, that's for me personally. Uh, so I actually swapped back. To the new one they've released, which I think is a 2.4 to 12 by 50. And that just seems to balance up really well on it. And yeah, it's that's that Z5, that three and a half to 18 might be better suited on the um, 204. So I'll see what happens. 
Yeah, speaking about that, I want to talk about what, what do you enjoy in scope manufacturers? Do you not really have one that you enjoy? You're happy to switch it up amongst manufacturers or are you a bit of a, like a couple of guys on the internet, a bit of a scope whore for one brand or? Yeah, well, I think there's certain, look, when I, when I went to build up that Rough Tech range, which I knew was going to be my long range rifle, well, it was a different scenario. Um, I really need to get a first focal plane lens, first focal plane scope. So Night Force to me have always been the best overall package for the sort of the long range stuff, the best reticles, the best adjustments. Uh, and the one I end up going for, the 5 to 25 ATAC R, is a pretty awesome machine wow. as far as Expensive optics. too. <laughs> yeah, they're not, they're not cheap, but, you know, it's, um, buy once, cry once. That's so. it. That's it. Um, but, yeah, as far as overall uh, scopes on my hunting rifles, it comes down to a lot of things. And for me, if you're going to spend the money, you want to know you've got the backup. And Swarovski, to me, I've, we've only ever had one issue, and it wasn't with a scope, it was with a pair of binos. They have been absolute fantastic. There's never any question of, oh, have you got your receipt or have you got this? So just send it back up. Yeah, no questions asked. And I know a lot of people say now oh, their warranty, I think, has been dropped to 10 years or whatever. But I, I can guarantee you, if you've got a problem with their product, you send it back to them and I think you'll be a very happy camper. And that's what people have got to remember. If they're spending sort of $1,000 on another brand rifle where the Swarrow might be 1500 upwards, You've got to ask yourself, am I going to get the best service if I need to? And I can tell you now, Swarrow have been fantastic for that. And for me, the Euroscopes on hunting rifles, they just seem to have the best, the most forgiving, uh, what I class as the eye box, like your alignment with um, your scope. If you throw it up to your um, to shoot it, you don't. It's, it's more forgiving. That's just my experience with them anyway. Favourite animal to hunt, mate? What do you enjoy? Uh, hand, hands down, wild dogs. Really? I thought you were going to say deer then. I thought you were going to say deer. No, no, no. no. I'm, I'm, I love hunting deer. Don't get me wrong. Um, I love hunting salmon deer. I love hunting all deer. But uh, calling in wild dogs, when they start to howl back at you and you can hear those howls getting closer, the, uh, the hairs on the back of your neck start to stand up. And, um, yeah, it's probably the most challenging animal to hunt, well, depending on numbers. Very The hardest to pattern. And for me, uh, yeah, it's definitely something that I sort of think when I've nailed one or two or whatever, it's I feel like I've had to work for it. And, yeah, not that you don't for deer, don't get me wrong, but, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, the wild dogs, uh, yeah, I definitely like my predator hunting sort of thing. Calling foxes with wild dogs, yeah, definitely. There's nothing like um, calling in foxes, isn't there, when the hairs, you start to see them coming in from three to 400 metres and the, the yeah. hair stands up on the back of your neck. Yeah, no, it's it, it's a challenge and one that uh, all the boys we hunt with, we, we love it. You know, we do it as a group. And the good thing is you can do it on your own. You can do it with a group. Um, a lot of people will say, oh, you can only do it in certain times of year, but I've never very often not got a whistle around my neck when I'm hunting. Um, and I've called them in the middle of winter, middle of summer. It's They can be unpredictable. 
Sometimes they'll come in when you want them to. Other times, you know, you won't get any all day long. And then all of a sudden, once the first one comes in, they just come in one after the other. So maybe it's a little bit like fishing, you know. Maybe they go off the bite and then they come back on. And who who really knows why? But the key to it is just to keep having a go, you know. When you're out there hunting deer and that, do you enjoy eating the game meat? If so, what do you sort of like to prepare with that? Well, primarily deer hunting for us is for meat. And um, over time, and bear in mind, we've only sort of got seriously into the deer hunting in probably the last 10 to 20 years. Um, before that, we were primarily uh, vermin control sort of thing. So what's your favourite game meat? Well, Venison, uh, if I was then to narrow it down into which venison I prefer, um, probably put red deer up on the top of my list that I've tried. But I think it really comes down more to how it's cooked or what you do with it. And, you know, we do, we do different processes with it. My mate Lee does fantastic jerky. Uh, I've been corning the larger clumps, and then you can sort of just boil it up like you would you know, corn beef or whatever. But what I've been doing lately is actually corning it and then taking it out of the corning solution after three days and putting it straight into my smoker. Oh, yeah, and then nice. Sm- and then smoke it. And then once it's hot smoking, once it's smoked, then you can let it cool. You can um, vac seal it, and that is to die for, absolute to die for. You've got to back off your corning mix a little bit um, as far as the concentration if you're going to smoke it. But that will keep unrefrigerated for, you know, sort of a week to 10 days. So it's very good to take in with you when you're, you're hunting or it's just fantastic just to have it for anything, yeah. If you, you were talking about before about getting in close and stalking and the long-range stuff. If you had to pick one, what's your number one favourite, getting in close or the, the, you know, the shooting way out there sort of stuff? Oh, that's a good question. I, I probably don't really have a favourite, but probably my favourite thing is, to be honest with you, it's just being able to do any or all of them. Um, you know, when I was younger, you know, always probably on the move, always wanted to stalk, you know, whether it was with my air rifle, I'd go out, you know, if we were camping somewhere, I'd always go out with my air rifle, my daisy air rifle, and try and come back with half a dozen rabbits. And they'd all have to be headshot. And you'd all you know you'd have to get within sort of oh, 10 to 20 yards back with those old little air rifles. But as you, as you get older, you sort of begin to slow down. You learn the word patience. And uh, you realise by, you know, sort of stopping, letting your optics do the walking, it, it can be more productive in certain situations. So, as you know, as any hunter, there's no point getting onto an animal if it's onto you first. It's all over. So, yeah, that's, that's how I see it at the moment. I don't know how many times, Steve, I've been out and just, you know, I'm, I'm always, you know, lifting deer out of the scrub because I'm walking around or I might spend all morning, you know, walking, you know, two or three steps every 30 seconds, nothing. Of course, when I'm heading back to, to camp or something, maybe you can go back for have some lunch. I'm always moving deer on the way back for some reason. God, it happens all yeah. the time to me. But I found yeah. the best success for me is just finding a good spot, finding out where I think they're going to be, looking for prints, and then just sitting and waiting. And two, three hours, yeah, it gets boring, but that's paid off for me quite a lot. Yeah, mate, that's pretty much spot on. Um, sort of trying to work out what any species is doing is the key to hunting. If you can start to read the sign, read how fresh it is, start to learn the habits, you're going to be in with a lot more chance than if you just, you know, sort of walk through aimlessly. You might think it's the way to go at the start, but 
in the end, patience pays off usually. And look, there was a thing on another podcast, I think I listened to somewhere else recently, they were talking about hunting in state forests. And they said, look, you're better off getting in your vehicle and driving the tracks early in the mornings and just seeing where the deer run across the road. Because in the morning, that's where they're coming back to, to shelter into that bush. So if you wait there in the afternoon, there's a good chance they're going to come back out of that bedding area. But if you do it in the opposite, where you see them running across there at night and disturb them, you don't know where they're going to come back in in the morning. So yeah, there's yeah, sometimes you just got to sit back and sort of try and work out what's going on around you, and, and usually that pays off. You're talking about you like to eat red deer. Is that your favourite species of deer to hunt? Uh... Oh, I wouldn't say it's a favourite to hunt. Probably um, as far as the hunting, the stalking, and just the environment, you can't go past samba deer. You know, it, it just they just the most adaptive animal that. The samba, uh, well, probably the the reds and the fallows are probably more more of a herd animal. The samba do too, but they they you've got more chance of finding them on their own. Um, well, you think they're on their own until you find you, you're looking at a stag and you start stalking, and then you didn't see this. It's sentry, one of the one of the hinds guarding that um, samba um, stag. But yeah, definitely hunting samba stags or. Hunting samba in general, I wouldn't say stay. Look, to be honest with you, they're all a challenge. Um, yeah, so for me, if I was to pick one, definitely get up in the uh, you know Alpine National Park and just go bush. It's pretty hard to beat. Have you got any current builds going on? Any you know future firearms planned purchases or any new gear you're wanting to purchase coming up soon? Or if so, what what are you planning on purchasing? Not at this stage, but I'm always. Yeah, I find it hard to pass up a bargain. Um, and I must <laughs> admit, all, that yeah, was, yeah that, that, that last one, that combination was sort of – I used to have a combination of 22 Magnum with a 20-gauge shotgun in a Savage, and it was just always a little bit underdone in the rifle and a little bit underdone in the shotgun for foxes. So I thought to myself, well, I wouldn't mind a triple two come um, – you know, 12 gauge or a 223 come 12 gauge, but this 243 one come up, and that's been my last build. And so far, I've been very, very ha- happy with it. And I've only just basically uh, tested the factory ammo on it, the 80 grain core locks in the 243. And it's got a little um, one to five carls on it, which is like an aim point when you're down on one power. But you crank it up to five, it is just spot on. And it was, I couldn't believe it. I, I put up a target at 200 yards, just a zero at 200. And it was still grouping within an, an inch at, um, at 200 yards. So I reckon with a little bit of tuning and with my hand loads, I can get it even um, better. Not that I need to, to be honest with you. Yeah, no, it sounds um, like a good little, What are you going to yeah. use it for? Just the fox shooting? and Pretty much, yeah. But the thing is, though, with that, it is legal. It is that caliber is legal for fallow uh, with an 80 grain projectile. So it's a sort of gun. If I'm in areas which I often hunt, which I know do have fallow deer, but there's also the old wild dog. Um, if a dog happens, if I happen to spook one, he gets up and runs off on me. Well, the shotty's going to come in very handy there. So yeah, it's it's going to be a, a a good all rounder again. So you know, I probably don't need it, but uh, yeah, it, it'll have its place. 
There's nothing about need, Steve. It's want. No. If you want it, mate, that's totally <laughs> no. fine. <laughs> totally yeah, fine. Yeah. Especially as you get older. Especially as you get older. You think, oh, all those things I couldn't have when I was younger, I want them now. Exactly. So. Mate, tell us about, which is why we're here, I guess, which I've, you know, I guess neglected throughout the early part of the show, but tell us about YouTube. What prompted you to start filming hunts and getting involved in, you know, putting that out on the social media interwebs? Uh, yeah, good question. Uh, well, I always had a bit of a, a bit of a passion for photography, and sort of as the video cameras improved and whatever, and computers, um, the, the the opportunity started to present to me that to do document all our little adventures, and create like little time capsules for you know for not only ourselves but our family in years to come. So, I originally just kept the videos private or unlisted and, and used YouTube as like a remote server that I could send uh, links to the boys. This, this saved me having to um, burn everything onto DVDs and physically actually have to get them to them. So they started to like them so much, they began to show their mates, their work colleagues, etc. And then, then the suggestions come to me, well, why don't you make some of these public? And I thought, oh, I'm not so sure on this. So a little bit hesitant at first, but then when I started to put them out, uh, I was surprised that anyone wanted to watch them, but the, the feedback that we got in general was pretty good. So it's just sort of grown from there. Are you looking to buy a new or used firearm? Do you want to sell that safe queen to fund your next purchase? Then go to OzGunSales.com. We have over 200 registered firearms dealers Australia-wide and thousands of shooters using the site daily. There are over 2,500 firearms listed, so you're certain to find exactly what you're looking for. We have over 50 years of firearms industry experience, including 8 years online. So why wouldn't you advertise with us? The one and only genuine original Ozguns. What do you want to achieve over the next couple of years? What do you hope to, you know, you never know, the sky's the limit, so to speak? Yeah, well... It's a lot of people think it's for financial gain and that. Well, that's it's never going to be the case, and it's not why any of us do it. It's look for me. Uh, I just see that what hunting was when we were younger, how it was accepted and whatever, and it wasn't. You you could have walked down the street with a you know a rifle bag over your shoulder, and no one would have blinked an eyelid. Do that today, completely different. So for me, I'd like to try and bring the whole hunting community together via all this media you know methods we've got at the moment we've got youtube facebook instagram podcast tv etc if we can concentrate all our efforts on growing a common agenda and not focusing on those little things we mightn't agree on to me that can only be positive and if i can play my part in that it'll make me a happy man so i know people i get that all the time you know and no doubt Robbie, you've had it too saying well do you you know, you must be doing this full time. Must pay pretty good. I'm like, no, 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 it doesn't, mate. I've got a full time job yeah. like everybody yeah. else. We make a little bit of cash from a few people that advertise on the show. If I had to pick, you know, figure out how much I've lost, I'd probably be getting about three cents an hour if I had to figure it out. <laughs> yeah, it's it's definitely um, it's what you can put into it. It's not what you get out of it. That's for sure. Financially, it's, it's definitely doesn't even come into the equation. No. But I mean, you know, like I said, yeah. if someone can make a little bit of, you know, getting your fuel taken care of or a bit of ammunition. Exactly. There's nothing yeah. wrong with that, you know, and getting no. and bringing out the great content to people. Well, exactly. You're, you know, you're 
producing content that people are enjoying. So look, if you can get a little bit back to cover some of your costs, well, that's a bonus, an absolute bonus. If you were looking back at your catalogue, now here's a good question for you. Um, what's, what's your favourite? What's your favourite video do you think you've made and what's sort of one that sticks out to you saying, yeah, really, that was a really great hunt? Uh, or a shooting video? Probably, really up to you, really. Well, I don't, I don't think I'd have a favourite video, but I've probably got a favourite series, series of videos. And that was probably when we hiked into – um, the high country last year, and um, that was high country samba uh, number two. And there was, I think, eight videos in that series. And basically, between going in with good mates, a brilliant location, all the challenges and weather conditions that was put out, thrown our way, that's sort of a bit of a standout for me, uh, just because I can relate to it. I know what happened. I know what was there. I know... The, the whole thing. Sometimes it doesn't possibly come across on videos, but I try my best to make it happen. And the, the location there was just absolutely brilliant. When we're doing, or you're doing videos, how can I explain this in the best way? Tell people what goes into it because, you know, when we watch it and we see that little video come up on YouTube because we're subscribed to your channel and it's, you know, 10, 12, 15, 20 minutes long, tell people what she goes into. They're just seeing the final product, but tell people actually what goes into and the time that actually goes into making these sort of videos and the editing, just so they can grasp that concept. Yeah, well, way more than you would probably most people would think. Um, look, from the time you film, I think for me, what I try and do when I film is you can't, you, you've got to commit. It's a big commitment and you've got to, and it does take you out of the hunt a little bit. But um, what you've got to do, you can't just film a little bit at the start of the day, a little bit at lunchtime, a little bit at the end of the day. You've got to film everything, every few minutes. So that means you're going to, and you've got to be prepared at the end when you come to editing that you are going to be trashing possibly anywhere from 80 to 90% of that. And to do a five-minute video, uh, if, depending on the intricacies of it, that can be a day to two days' work. Um, the last series that I did with uh, Daz and the boys from Into the Mountains where we went into the high country again, we combined our efforts. We basically pulled all our video footage and I edited it at the end. That was a solid month's work um, for four, four videos, which range from sort of 15 to 20 minutes. And that's basically I get up at sort of two or three in the morning, do a few hours work before I go to work, get home in the afternoon, do another three or four hours work and then all weekend for a month. So that's what it takes, and primarily it's just going through all the footage and then trying to work out how to tell the story. So, yeah, there is quite a bit involved. Many would say I'm crazy if I do it, but it's a challenge, and everyone needs a challenge in life. What are some of the positives and negatives about making videos for YouTube? Um, well, I really only try and concentrate on the positives, uh, and it can be a challenge to do that at times. But for me, meeting and talking to probably such a diverse group of people, not only in Australia but worldwide, has been probably the best part of making our videos public. Uh, the negatives, so, like I probably briefly touched on a second ago, the filming sort of can take me away from the hunting side of things. 
And it can also put pressure on relationships, time with the overall, you know, with her mates and whatever. But overall, my mates have just been phenomenal. They've just backed me, helped me where I can. Um, but, yeah, it, it, can, it can wear thin every now and then. What about the joys of anti-hunters on the page going, hey, you bastard, you know, you're killing these uh, sweet, innocent animals. What the hell? <laughs> uh, yeah, well, it's life's always seen from different perspectives. But, yeah, I do get quite a bit of it. Um, and, and I have no issue having a, anyone with a different outlook uh, on their life than me, different perspective on it. And I treat everyone with respect until I have reason not to. And I try and educate any of the non-hunters where I can. That's the first way I'll go about it. Uh, If they're abusive or threatening, they quickly get blocked and their comments removed. And this seems to work the best for me. Exactly. Mate, give us some top two or three hunting tips that you've learned, uh, I guess, to sort of finish off. uh, For newer experienced hunters, what would you think the top, say, two or three are? Uh, I'd say the first thing is always try and find reasons why you should go hunting and not why you shouldn't. Uh, Secondly, recognise probably that a successful hunting trip is not what you you put on the ground. It's about the whole experience. And probably last, I'd say know your gear, perfect it to the best of your ability, because having confidence in your equipment will just let you concentrate more on the hunt itself. It's pretty. That's probably where I would come from, you know, in my experience. Yep. And if someone, let's say there's some young whippersnapper, he's on YouTube, he's watching Bold Action Productions, he's not sure, he really wants to get into, you know, hunting and shooting, he's a little bit hesitant, what sort of advice you'd give to that new person wanting to wanting to get into it? Well, it's probably a little bit related to the last question. The first thing is not to stop coming up with excuses why not to do it. Uh, and then, look, go find out where your local range or um, your local clubs are and whatever, and just go down as a spectator. Most times, you know, most of these locations are quite happy just to have people come in and you don't, they don't force you to sign up or whatever. And then just go to a few until you find you know, the right, right niche, the one that sort of clicks for yourself. And you might be surprised what you get out of it over time. So, mate, if people want to find out, they want to jump on the, the interwebs, the YouTubes and the social medias, how do they uh, find you and which ones are you on currently? Uh, well, obviously, YouTube. So just type in Bold Action Productions. Uh, I have a little bit to do with Instagram, not a, not a great deal. Facebook, obviously. Uh, I do have a Patreon account that I've sort of set up, but it's sort of just gone to the back burner at the moment. It's sort of a backup if YouTube all falls in it, uh, on its face, but as far as the hunting side of it. But, uh, yeah, pretty easy. Just type in Bold Action Productions. You'll find us. And uh, don't hesitate to contact us with any questions. And It's one of the reasons that I'm going to give this live feed to go on Tuesday nights. Whether I can continue to do it every Tuesday night, whether we run out of content, uh, the live streaming of it has been a real challenge uh, with just the gear, just to getting it reliable. And hopefully, I think I'm on onto it now. But if it fails again next Tuesday, I'll be definitely look at changing up the equipment. So, for that, one of the reasons I started it is just gives you people opportunity to ask questions there and then, and I can answer it verbally because trying to do, sit down typing all day long is just not me. Mm. So yeah, look. 
reach out. I'm always open to, uh, like I said, helping anyone out and promoting hunting in a positive way. That's that's what we're about. What's coming up for the future, mate? Is there any little videos just sitting on YouTube there, just private waiting to uh, release, or what's coming up for the future? What have you got planned? Um, I'm a little bit spent at the moment. I'm a little bit over video editing. So he's got uh, nothing. That's what you're telling me. <laughs> pretty much got some private stuff. Um, but no, nothing in the near, not in the next couple of weeks, I can tell you that much, except for these live feeds. But they, like I said, we'll give that a go and we'll see what happens. But I'm always open to suggestions from people too. Um, like I said, I, I didn't really want to make this channel sort of a, a channel on uh, doing reviews, but sometimes it goes hand in hand. And as I think sometimes people need to hear an honest opinion through experience. And sometimes I find that that doesn't get portrayed in some, in, in some avenues. So if you hear it from me, I'm going to give it a, you know, I've got nothing to gain uh, from telling you, you know, white lies basically. So, um, and I'm usually pretty, level-headed when it comes to that I'll, I'll give you the the pros and cons and and no no company is perfect but like i said about sort of swarovski and that the dealings i've had with them for argument's sake have been fantastic i've got no um, links in with them no ties in with them but i do know the guys there and mate like uh, they're look, for scopes and anything like that spend the money buy once cry once I tend to put all my money into my scopes and less in my rifles. I'll burn my rifles out. The scope will last your lifetime if you choose well. Yeah, exactly. It's interesting how the scopes, you know, a lot of people, and I was probably like that at first. I'd rather probably have less firearms and have better scopes than just, you know, have more, you know, rifles just for the sake of it, which I don't get to use them all the time anyway. So I just like the idea of buying something new all the time. But, you know, now I'm getting into that more expensive. I'd rather have less rifles and put better glass on them than, you know, go the opposite route? Well, I think it's a very hard thing to explain to people how much a good optic can improve your hunting in more ways than one. Uh, rifles, look, it's very hard to get a bad shooting rifle and a bad uh, rifle for hunting, the normal hunting conditions. But most people will probably put, uh, you know, anywhere from 70 to 80% of their expenditure onto the rifle. And then the scope is often an afterthought. So I think you've got to do it a little bit. You know, you've got to find a bit more of a balance, especially if you want to get serious about it. I know. It's interesting because then some people, you know, they say, well, what's, what's a good scope for, you know, like just normal hunting out to 100 yards? And I said, well, you know, a lot of the, even some, I've got to be honest, some of the cheaper ones probably will do the job for you anyway at that range, if that's what you're sort of interested in doing. But I guess... As you know, it's when you step up into that long, longer range shooting, and whether you need you know turrets to be tracking properly, whether you need the reticle. I mean, these things are hugely important. Whether you need to be shooting, you know, you're shooting longer distances yeah, in the in the early morning or the late afternoon. That's when you start to come into your own of different things. But I said, if you're shooting, you know, even early morning with a, a five hundred dollars scope at you know eighty or hundred yards on deer, and you've got thick country, I said, that that'll work for you. That's fantastic. You don't have to spend a lot of money, but it's I think when you get to that higher end and longer distance, I mean, if you want to spend the money, sure, go right ahead. I think that's fantastic. But Yeah, look, you don't have to go out and buy the top-of-the-range Z8 Swarovski, but um, there's more to scopes than just picking up one and looking through them. And if you're doing that and just comparing them that way, you're kidding yourself because 
the the way they build, how much um, pressure they're going to handle. Like when I go in deer hunting, like I was like, there's a good chance that my rifle has been hit up against rocks, uh, rifle scope. You only need to have one fall. That's where you've got to put your faith in your optics holding steady because I can tell you now, one of the hunts myself and Ben did, we went, we dropped from sort of 1,200 metres down to 300 metres over a kilometre. It was sort of sheer rock face. Uh, I didn't drop my rifle but sort of fell against it a few times. And then in the end, I've had that, I've had an, op- an opportunity to take a Samba stag at I think it was about 375 yards. Now, if ever there was going to be a test on a rifle rig, it was going to be then. And that bullet was within inches of where I aimed. So I think this is where you've, again, getting back to what I said, put the time and effort into perfecting your gear and be confident with it because you know you've got top quality stuff. Absolutely, man. Well, it's been um, a pleasure having you here on the show. So if you want to check him out, uh, Bold Action Productions on YouTube, everybody. I think he's on Instagram as well, which uh, is where I initially contacted you, Steve. So uh, Steve Robinson joins us here from Bold Action Productions to have a chat about everything hunting and shooting and getting into the outdoors. Steve, really appreciate it. Thanks for your time, and uh, it's been great having a chat with you. I really appreciate it. Pleasure, mate. Pleasure is all mine. You've been listening to an episode of the Australian Hunting Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. See you next time.